come from the hospital, the arm or your, your wrist goes limp, you can't use it. So for a couple of weeks, I noticed that I couldn't use it at all. And then eventually it just stayed in that weird limp position for about a year and a half. Before the stroke, the same symptoms that I had at 41, 40 and 41, I had at 10. That was severe vomiting, weird hearing loss, no taste, no appetite, and losing the ability to swallow, which is odd. When I was 19, they didn't even know I was pregnant. No symptoms, no weight gain, nothing. And I had a severe migraine and vomiting. I had vomiting for about two, three months of the pregnancy and ended up losing my son at about nine months into the pregnancy because they didn't know how to treat a person who was in remission from lupus. Years later, I started having weird afflictions, skin afflictions. I went in for, because I kept having boils, open wounds, open sores, and they started to treat me. And one of the doctors asked me about my pregnancy history and why had I not bore another child while I was pregnant. He just was just wanting to know for his own records. And that's when he realized if they'd have given me something as simple as aspirin therapy, that would have resolved a lot of the issues and they would have monitored my blood pressure better. From what I can remember based on what I now know the symptoms of the TIA versus the stroke, I can say there were five TIAs and two strokes that I know were strokes. And one of the main symptoms that a lot of stroke patients go through is that weird irritability and not necessarily being able to contain something is triggering you or triggering a response. That was such a problem that I, I usually didn't stay at a job long. So that forced me to walk out of catering and out of being a chef to going into the back office. So that meant doing paperwork and consultations and seeing people face to face versus being on a sales floor or coordinating an event and doing, you know, food prep for six or seven hours before an event. Hello, I'm Mark Goodyear, and this is Stroke Stories, the podcast that seeks out and hears from stroke survivors. Lupus, the autoimmune disease, is known to increase the risk of a cerebrovascular event. About 4.5% of lupus sufferers will experience a stroke or a TIA. About 1.5 million people in America and 5 million around the world are currently living with lupus. In this episode, we'll hear from Camicia Mitchell from Houston, Texas, who suffered her first TIA at the age of 10. This is 1986. Doctors were scrambling to diagnose me with everything other than the symptoms. Coming home from the hospital, the arm where your, your wrist goes limp, you can't use it. So for a couple of weeks, I noticed that I couldn't use it at all. And then eventually it just stayed in that weird limp position for about a year and a half. Before the stroke, the same symptoms that I had at 41, 40 and 41, I had at 10. That was severe vomiting, weird hearing loss, no taste, no appetite, and losing the ability to swallow, which is odd. For the lupus, it was diagnosed within two years. The TIA was ignored because they didn't understand how you could have pediatric TIAs based on the treatment that they were giving me, which would have been a cytoxin, which is a chemotherapy type drug, until I was maybe 14 or 15. When I was 19, they didn't even know I was pregnant. No symptoms, no weight gain, nothing. And I had a severe migraine and vomiting. I had vomiting for about two, three months of the pregnancy and ended up losing my son at about nine months into the pregnancy because they didn't know how to treat a person who was in remission from lupus. So they didn't check my blood pressure. They didn't offer anything additional. This is with healthcare. They just overlooked it. 
years later, I started having weird afflictions, skin afflictions. I went in for, because I kept having boils, open wounds, open sores. And they started to treat me. And one of the doctors asked me about my pregnancy history. And why had I not bore another child while I was pregnant? He just was just wanting to know for his own records. And that's when he realized if they'd have given me something as simple as aspirin therapy, that would have resolved a lot of the issues and they would have monitored my blood pressure better. From what I can remember, based on what I now know, the symptoms of the TIA versus the stroke, I can say there were five TIAs and two strokes that I know were strokes. Camicia had to wait a long time before she was officially diagnosed with lupus. The first two years, they couldn't diagnose if it was leukemia or rheumatoid arthritis. They didn't even understand lupus. In 1986, they could not diagnose lupus. They diagnosed it as rheumatoid arthritis, juvenile arthritis. And then eventually none of the criteria stuck, so they couldn't use that anymore. Then it was, okay, maybe this is a blood cancer. They went with blood cancer. They couldn't find anything. So finally it was, okay, we don't know what to give you, so we'll just give you a chemotherapy drug because we don't know what it is you have. And so through school, that forced teachers to treat me like, like and I hate to use those words, bubble girl, where everything is, you're, you know, you're, you're protected, you're shielded, you're in a bubble. And that's pretty much all of middle school. And I guess the first year of high school, I mainly was with cousins. I, I'll be honest with you. I had a lot of classmates, but not a lot of friends because they didn't know how to deal with me or their parents. You know, keep in mind, we're, we're middle school and high schoolers. Their parents are like, oh, what does she have? So they, they didn't know what I have. I didn't have any open wounds or afflictions until high school, but all through uh, in college, but all through elementary and middle school, I had weird skin irritations. So this series of events was, was always there that just everybody overlooked it. I started out doing culinary arts, wanting to be, a, well, being a chef. And my mom was a caterer, so catering came naturally. But fatigue took over. And one of the main symptoms that a lot of stroke patients go through is that weird irritability and not necessarily being able to contain something is triggering you or triggering a response. That was such a problem that I, I usually didn't stay at a job long. So that forced me to walk out of catering and out of being a chef to going into the back office. So that meant doing paperwork and consultations and seeing people face to face versus being on a sales floor or coordinating an event and doing, you know, food prep for six or seven hours before an event. In 2019, Camicia suffered another stroke. The ambulance told me, oh no, you're just an overweight black woman and you didn't eat your breakfast. My breakfast was on the seat of the car, but I didn't remember driving myself there. I didn't remember eating and I didn't even know my name. And the paramedic told my family members, you know, she took, she ruined her car. She's run off the road. You need to take her home. She hasn't eaten. So she's probably got overwhelmed and overworked and she's overweight. So that was what was told to me by a paramedic. We're in Houston, Harris County police officer and a Houston police officer, two different counties, one city, usually would have taken me to jail, slurring my speech, not remembering my name, highly agitated and highly confused. His first response would have been to call in mental evaluations and to take me downtown. But instead, as I was talking to him, I started to regress, meaning it started out a normal conversation. And within five minutes of talking to him, I didn't know my name. I was crying, asking him, how did I get here? Who are you? So he remembered the last thing I said, which was where I was on my way to. He actually got in his police cruiser, 
went to that location to find my parents is what happened. And in the meantime, a female officer from a different county came and sat with me. And she's a person that whispered to my other sibling, this lady is having a stroke. Do not listen to these paramedics. They're looking at her age and her race and the fact that her breakfast is on the seat of her car. But you need to get her to a hospital before two hours. Trust me. What felt like an hour to me was probably a few minutes. They went and secured the vehicle because I had ran off the road and ran the tires off the road, literally off the car. Uh, she went, secured that. That was maybe 30 minutes to an hour. I'm not sure. By the time she came back, I couldn't hold a cup in my hand. And I couldn't talk. And I kept slamming my hand in the door. And they got me to the hospital. First lady was like, okay, well, we have a police report that says that she was disoriented. Why do you think that she has a problem? Why do you think this is a stroke? So, And this happens a lot with stroke patients. I hope that most people who talk with you explain that. Most people question the authenticity of your stroke. The first nurse kept saying, I don't see any symptoms. The second nurse, a very mature woman, was like, no, no, no. Her blood pressure is spiking by the minute, and she can't hear us. For some reason, I couldn't hear anything. And so they got me through triage, and within a matter of 15 minutes, they did an enzyme test and was like, wait a minute, this is a stroke. So you would think that from there, it would be all stroke related because this was an active stroke. I was still in the midst of a stroke. Let's put it like that. So your triage, which is your emergency room technicians and nursing staff and the doctor all came in and diagnosed this. By the time I was admitted to a room, the lupus team came in and told the heart doctor, heart specialist, no, 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 no. You guys can leave. This is just lupus. I was there for four days. By the second day, that heart doctor, he came back in and he was like, you have a clot somewhere. Your speech is getting better, but you can't use your hands. We're going to have you get up and do some physical therapy and I'm going to make a separate diagnosis. And he had to do this in between those hematology, oncology and rheumatology testings for the lupus team because they basically controlled everything. But I was on a stroke floor in the hospital. And so by the time I had a, another series of MRIs, enzyme testing, brain scans, hearing tests, swallowing tests, they were like, no, that was a stroke. That was not a TIA. It was a stroke. We cannot find the clot. You have a floating clot. So they never could find the clot. They realized that I had fibroids. And as I tried to explain to the physicians who I now know were part of the lupus team, every time I told her the symptoms that I were having, which I now know are part of strokes, she ignored them. She literally talked over me and changed the subject. The lupus team never allowed the heart team, nor the physical therapy team or speech therapist team to diagnose anything other than lupus. The free medical care, which is you get up to th three visits post-stroke. They dumbed it down to one visit and told me, you look fine to me. You've lost five pounds. You need to go on a diet. Take these medications for six months. You need to get better health care. But as far as we can see, you're fine. I asked, could you help me get Medicaid? But because I am a 40-year-old black woman with no children, so I don't qualify for anything that is Medicaid-related because I don't have children. So that puts me out of the, the, the rim of a lot of uh, healthcare options.
Coming up, Camicia talks about some of the cognitive issues caused by her stroke. Listen to the patient or the survivor, however a person wants to classify, because everybody wants to identify differently. We have to let them get you as a caretaker or family member of a survivor, get used to not telling your opinion of a series of events. Get used to not walking into a space and telling people, well, I remember this, this and that happened. Let the survivor speak. And her advice to the loved ones of a stroke survivor. Imagine yourself opening every cabinet she has and me rearranging everything in every cabinet. Literally, this went on for about three weeks and then eventually my body got tired. Then I, I got agitated, I couldn't hear. To this day, and this is what, two years after the stroke, I can't take sitting in front of a computer screen or something like that. It sends these weird neuron issues. It just goes wacky. Let's hear about the treatments Camicia was offered while she recovered in hospital. No operation. I just had uh, in-house procedures for the hearing with my ears being clogged and unclogged, swallowing, which was a, a problem. And they were able to see that the, since the clot was moving, that they didn't need to operate. So they went with a form of sound therapy just to see how you react in, in, when, in, when agitated versus engaged. And in the process, they realized I couldn't see. I was told that I couldn't drive and things like that because of Texas has a lot of laws with stroke patients and stroke recovery. You can't drive, certain things you can't do, you can't be a part of. So I went home with a family member, couldn't sleep, severe migraines, fatigue. And then all of a sudden it went from fatigue to a form which they're now, they're now diagnosing as mania. So it was this burst of energy to just clean my sibling's home, like from top to bottom. Imagine, imagine yourself opening every cabinet she has and me rearranging everything in every cabinet. Literally, this went on for about three weeks and then eventually my body got tired. Then I, I got agitated, I couldn't hear. To this day, and this is what, two years after the stroke, I can't take sitting in front of a computer screen or something like that. It sends these weird neuron issues. It just goes wacky. Still limited balancing, balancing issues rather. I still have sight issues. That was diagnosed in the hospital. I can't see on the right quadrant. So the lower right part of my eye is still damaged from the stroke. So I can't see, if I'm driving, I can't see anything far to the far right. So that's still an issue that limits me getting things done. My hearing is still sabotaged, but that's considered neurological. I still have severe thyroid issues and gallbladder issues, and they can't figure out if it's from the medication they would give me from the stroke or what has caused it. I was never diagnosed with or given the opportunity to, to seek any type of additional psychotherapy or physical therapy, anything. And I actually told them that two or three days before the stroke, I had unpacked. I was getting ready to move, so everything was packed neatly. The hours before the stroke, I had literally unpacked my whole house and tore everything down. And so that mania, something flipped. Even how I got in my car and drove but didn't know where I was going. This is from a stroke lady who was giving free counseling to us. She said, it seems like you were on autopilot, which sounds odd, but your brain was doing what was familiar. So I still have days like that, which makes no sense. I'll wake up and I'll be driving and be like, wait a minute, how did I get here? So I still have that memory loss issue sometimes. And Camisia believes stroke survivors shouldn't be afraid to speak up. I would tell any stroke survivor, ask questions, 
take control of your medical health. Be willing to use your own voice and understand that sometimes your caretaker, they don't always understand what you're going through. And as far as for a caretaker or family member who of a stroke survivor, I would suggest that they have patience, respect and empathy. And again, listen to the patient or the survivor, however a person wants to classify, because everybody wants to identify differently. We have to let them get you as a caretaker or family member of a survivor, get used to not telling your opinion of a series of events. Get used to not walking into a space and telling people, well, I remember this, this and that happened. Let the survivor speak. Camisia's lupus is currently in remission and she's dedicating her time to catering and her work as a private motivational speaker. Please don't forget to subscribe to Stroke Stories and rate and comment on the episode you hear and like to help us spread the word. And if you are or you know a stroke survivor and there's a story you can share, please contact via Twitter or Instagram. Our DMs are open. The Stroke Stories podcast was produced by Aidan Judd. I'm Mark Goodyear. Thank you for listening. Thank you.